Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 1, please. 2 Chronicles chapter 1. A last, or this past Wednesday night, had a sermon where we took a look at the life of Solomon and how things started out okay, but it ended up an absolute mess. And we, as we looked at that, we saw how it really is a kind of um, a prophetic example of what's happening in the church today. Well, we want to go back and take another look briefly here at Solomon and then move forward. Now, Wednesday night, we read from 1 Kings uh, chapter 3, I think it was. Well, today we're going to be reading from 1 Chronicles. It's essentially the same story, it's just presented a little bit differently, or 2 Chronicles. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and magnified him exceedingly. Then Solomon spake unto all Israel, to the captains of thousands and of hundreds, and to the judges, and to every governor in all Israel, the chief of the fathers. Now stop right there and look at this. Here's the king, and he is speaking to the captains of thousands and of hundreds. Okay, what does that represent? He's speaking to the military. Then he's speaking to the judges and the governors. Now who's he talking to? He's, yeah, he's talking to the civil side of it, the legal side of it, the judicial side of it, the political side of it. And in verse 3, So Solomon and all the congregation with him went to the high place that was, in, that was at Gibeon, for there was the tabernacle of the congregation of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. Now, I find that really, really amazing. The tabernacle that had been built centuries before was still around. Now, they didn't build it out of brick. You understand that? So it's, to me, it's pretty incredible that any part of this was still around. Well, verse 4, but the ark of God had David brought up from Kirath-Jerim to the place which David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. Moreover, the brazen altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and the congregation sought unto it. And Solomon went up thither to the brazen altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of the congregation, and offered a thousand burnt offerings upon it. In that night did God appear unto Solomon, and said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said unto God, Thou hast showed great mercy unto David my father, and hast made me to reign in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established, for thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this thy people that is so great? And God said to Solomon, Because this was in thine heart, and thou hast not asked for riches, wealth, or honor, nor the life of thine enemies, neither yet hast thou asked long life, but hast asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself, that thou mayest judge my people, over whom I have made thee king, wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee. And 
I will give thee riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have had that have been before thee, neither shall any after thee have the like. Then Solomon came from his journey to the high place that was at Gibeon to Jerusalem from before the tabernacle of the congregation and reigned over Israel. Now, there's an aspect of this that um, the Lord kind of brought to my attention that I found rather interesting. When Solomon became king, he did not sit and think, now, how do the other kings in the world govern their countries? What do they do? In fact, he didn't even sit around and think, okay, what did my dad, David, do? How did he handle it as a king? What he did was go to God. He went to God and he said, you know what? Um, you know, my dad, David, he was a really good king. And there are a lot of other kings around the world, but, but I need you to tell me what I'm supposed to do. I need wisdom and knowledge on how to be a king to these people. On how to govern these people. Now he could easily, he could have not done that at all. But he goes, it says here, to the brazen altar, he offers up all of these, these sacrifices. And then God appears before him. And he says, I need wisdom. I need your help. And to me that is amazing. That, that in itself was an act of wisdom because he didn't simply say, I can do this like my dad. He said, no, I'm the king now. And I need to find out what you want me to do. So please give me wisdom. I mean, there were, look, when David died and Solomon became king, it's not like the population of Israel increased by four or five million. Just overnight. didn't happen. So pretty much the people who were alive when David died were still alive when Solomon became king. And he, so in other words, there was a great multitude of people when David was king. And Solomon is saying, I can't govern these people without your wisdom. Without this knowledge. I can't do this. Even though his dad had done it. That I can't. I need your help. Alright, now let's jump ahead several centuries. Turn to Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28. Now for roughly three, between three and three and a half years, the apostles were traveling with Jesus, and there were other people that traveled with Jesus as well. It wasn't just the twelve. Because if you study the four Gospels, you'll see there were others that, that traveled along with them. It's just that the twelve were specifically identified more than once. But nevertheless, for a little over three years, three to, between three and three and a half years, the twelve apostles and others traveled with Jesus. They heard him teach. They saw what he did. Well, Jesus, he's crucified, and he's raised from the dead. And we look at this in Matthew chapter 28, in verse 18. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, 
teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So we're seeing a bit of the instruction that he's giving them. Now, if you look over in Mark chapter 16, we get a little more information. In Mark 16, in, oh, let's just see. Well, Jesus has risen. It's the first day of the week. Um, it says, verse 9, Jesus was risen early the first day of the week. He appears unto Mary and some others. And in verse 12, he appeared unto two, which uh, that's the, uh, like the two on the road to Emmaus. But then in verse 14, afterward, in other words, it's still the first day of the week. This is still resurrection day. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye unto all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then we see that in Matthew 28, he says, Go out and tell people that I'm the way, the truth, and life. Tell people I'm the Messiah, the Savior, so forth. And then once they've accepted me, then you teach them what I taught you. We also see he gave them an instruction Lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. Cast out devils and so forth. So it wasn't just go out and tell people about me and then disciple them. It was also a matter of there are some signs that are going to be accompanying what you do. Well, turn over to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Now here in Luke chapter 24... In verse 1, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. All right, so once again we see it's the first day, his, uh, the day of his resurrection. Then if you jump, well, what happens in this? Um, you get more detail about the two on the road to Emmaus that he appears unto them. And in verse 33, it says, and they, those two that were on the road to Emmaus that he appeared to, and they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared unto Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Now, See, a lot of times when we read this and the way it's presented, we have this idea that Jesus only appeared to the eleven. But here we see the two on the road to Emmaus were in that room with the eleven when Jesus appeared. Well, it says in verse 37, But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are you troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Handle me, and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy, and wondered, 
he said unto them, Have you here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the, in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Now, stop right there. In verse 44, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. Now, he's been with them for roughly three and a half years. But he died and he rose. So what he's talking about here, the words that I spake unto you while I was yet with you. This is pre-crucifixion words, teaching that he's talking about. And then in verse 45, he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. What scriptures? Well, verse 44, the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. See that? In other words, like the whole Old Testament. <laughs> now what this means is, Jesus was with them more than just five minutes. Do you understand this? He's teaching them. He's giving them a review of everything that he taught them. And he's also reviewing with them the law and the prophets and Psalms relative to who he is, who he was with them, what he's going to do from this point on, etc. and so forth. Do you follow what I'm saying? In other words, it's class time. And he's, it's like he's saying, okay, now do you remember when I was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, remember what I said, etc., teach, teach, and so on. And he didn't have to spend a whole lot of time in parables here. He opened their understanding. They were born again. Some people say they didn't get born again until the day of Pentecost. You know, Acts, Book of Acts. No, that's not true. They were born again here. How do you know that? Because... What does it take to be born again? You have to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, do you think they're believing it right about now? <laughs> this is when they were born again. Not the day of Pentecost. We'll get to the day of Pentecost. They're born again here. That's why he was able to open their understanding because now they have the mind of Christ to understand these things. In fact, if you go back and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in a, in a few places... It says something along the lines of, um, and I'll paraphrase, and after his resurrection, they understood what he meant. Okay, now, verse 46, And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. So then, verse 44, he says, These are all the things that I said when I was with you, things that must be fulfilled, that were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Verse 45, he opens their understanding and he starts teaching. There is a space in between verse 45 and verse 46. You see that? There's a space between understand the scriptures, and then and he said, and it, see that? Okay, verse 45 and a half is all the teaching that he did. Verse 46 is the conclusion of all the teaching. You see that? If you look, just meditate, you'll see it. 
He says, thus it is written. Or in conclusion, this is why it was written, etc. and so forth. And then he says, behold, verse 49, I send the promise of the Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. So, here's what we have. An instruction from Jesus, go into all the world, tell them about me, that they can be saved, and then once they're saved, you teach them what I've taught you. Well, they just heard him review everything, and after three plus years of having it sewn into them, now it's able to come forth from their minds, it was stored up, now it's coming forth in a way that they understand. Oh yeah, I get it now. Yeah, so or so is the word. Yeah, it makes all the sense. And then he says, you're going to lay hands on the sick, cast out devils. Okay, so what we would refer to as like signs, wonders, miracles, healings, things like that. Then he says, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Now turn over to Acts chapter 1. So what happened, they did not just charge out there and start doing stuff. They had instructions. Here's what you are supposed to do. I want you to go out and I want you to tell people about me. I want you to disciple those that believe. You're going to be involved with signs, wonders, and miracles, so on and so forth. But, before you do that, tarry in Jerusalem till you be endued with power from on high. Now, they could have said, some of them could have said, well, okay, we already have had our understanding enlightened. And we understand things that we didn't really understand before. We know what he told us to do. So, why tarry in Jerusalem? I mean, let's just go out and do it. How many people are going to miss out if we tarry in Jerusalem? Well, he said, tarry in Jerusalem till you be endued with power. Then you go do these things. Well, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Then if you jump to verse 8, he's talking with them. This is the last time he's going to talk with them. And he says, you know, uh, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had thus, or when he had spoken these things, while he beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, two, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women 
and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Okay, so what do we have here? Well, it says in verse 15, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120, and then he goes on and he's talking uh, to them, but we won't get into all that. But here's what we have. He was with them for 40 days, appearing in different places and so forth. And then, this essentially, what we see here in verses 8 through 11, this is essentially day 40. Because he tells them, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power, and you'll be witnesses unto me, and then he ascends up into heaven, and they go back into Jerusalem. Now, from day, from day 40 up until the day of Pentecost is 10 days. Well, how do you know that? Pentecost, Pente, 50. It was 50 days. Okay, the day of Pentecost is separate from the Passover. Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. He was with them for 40 days. Now, here it is, the day of Pentecost. That means 10 days, roughly there, 10 days in the upper room. Now, during this time, they're in the upper room. They're waiting for the power. They already know what they're supposed to do, right? They already know that they're supposed to go out, tell people about Jesus being the Savior. They already know that they're supposed to disciple the believers. They, and they know that they're supposed to, they even know what they're supposed to teach. Because he reviewed it with them before he left. They also know that lay hands on the sick, signs, demonstrations of power. They know all that. They know it. But they have to tarry in Jerusalem till they be endued with power. I can't find anything in Scripture, or haven't yet found it, which says that the Holy Ghost was going to move and endue them with power on the day of Pentecost. Now, if you if you can find that, please let me know because I haven't found it yet. They just knew tarry in Jerusalem till you be endued with power. So there they are, about 120 men and women. All right, men and women. You know, if you, all these people out there that talk about women shouldn't be in ministry, well, if that's the case, then they shouldn't have been in the upper room. Now, seriously, the apostles should have kicked them out and said, oh, no, no, you women, you can't have power. No, 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 you cannot do this. No, that's nuts. So here they are in the upper room, about 120 of them. And then Acts chapter 2 uh, What's happened? Cloven tongues like as of fire, and they're filled with the Holy Ghost, begin speaking in tongues, and this massive number of people are listening to Peter as he stands up and preaches. In verse 14, But Peter, standing up at the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. Now why does it say he stood up at the eleven? Some people would say, well, that must have been there was only eleven people in the upper room. No, no, no. It says there are about 120 men and women. Why did he stand up at the 11? Because they were the ones who had been identified by Jesus as apostles. So it's like here they are, the 120, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they're speaking in tongues, and, and all these people gather together to witness this phenomenon. And then Jesus, um, uh, or then Jesus, you know, he has already restored Peter, you know, feed my sheep. Remember that? And we'll see that again a little bit later on. But... Then Peter stands up with the apostles, all right, with, with the, what you might call the lead staff of Jesus' ministry. 
And he begins delivering the message. It doesn't mean the remainder of the 120 weren't there. They were there. So then, he begins preaching this message, and if you jump over to verse 38, then Peter said unto them, because they said, well, you know, what should we do, these people listening? And Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. Now jump down to verse 46. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So what happened on the day of Pentecost, the approximately 3,000 people who were born again, it didn't stop there. Daily, more and more people were being added. Daily, more and more people were accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you take a look at this, it says that these approximately 3,000 in one day were, were added to the kingdom, if you will. And they continued steadfastly. Who? Well, it would have been those that were uh, converted, the 3,000. But then also, the 11, it says they continued in the apostles' doctrine. Okay, that doesn't mean the apostles were the only one ministering to these people. Because you've got the 120 in the upper room. What do you think they're doing for 10 days? Just sitting around and talking about the football game? What do you think they're doing? They're up there talking about the Lord. They're talking about all these things that Jesus taught them. They're, having, they're, they're edifying each other with the word of the Lord. And they're encouraging each other. And they're strengthening each other in this fellowship. So when this happens and they continue in the apostles' doctrine, it's not only the eleven who know the apostles' doctrine. It's that whole bunch that would have been there, the hundred twenty. They all knew. Now, when, when this happened on the day of Pentecost, the, uh, the apostles and others, they knew the message that they had received. Preach the gospel, disciple the people, baptize. I mean, they knew the message. And when this happened on the day of Pentecost, and all these people get born again, I do not know what it was like in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago when this took place. So I do not know how many streams of water were available. I don't know how many ponds or how many lakes nearby. You know, things have changed over the years. And I, I started doing some research on this, but quite frankly, it was impossible. I mean, for my research and everything I looked for, I could not find any kind of documentation telling me how many anythings of water were in or around Jerusalem? Not just rivers, but, okay, what did you have available at that time? Well, I don't know, but they had something available <laughs> because they baptized these people. Now, when they did this, 
they, after they get born again, they get baptized, and they continue the discipling. Jesus said, when people get converted, you preach the gospel. That's what Peter did. And those who believe, what do you do? You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then what do you do? You disciple them. That is exactly what they did. They followed that pattern here. You have about 3,000 who get saved. Then afterward, they get baptized. Then, in verse 42, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Verse 46, continuing daily with one accord in the temple. They're also going house to house. So they're ha- they're able, there's a, there was a section, an area there in the temple to where people could gather and meet. And so these folks are gathering together and they're teaching every day. Every day. They're continuing. They're being discipled. So what we have is kind of like a New Testament version of what Solomon did. Solomon was appointed to be king. God is the one, through David, who said Solomon will take over when David dies. So here's Solomon, he's the king. Now before he goes out and starts daily acting like a king and doing king things, what does he do? He goes before God, he goes to the altar, the brazen altar, and he offers up sacrifices. And he says, God, you know, he has this vision, God appears to him and he says, I need wisdom, I need knowledge. And God gave that to him. Then he went out and started doing all the kingly things that he did. And things went well until all the women got involved. All right. Here the apostles are and the 120. They knew they were supposed to go out, preach, disciple, baptize, all that. They, they knew. They knew this. But they also knew they were to tarry before they went out. So just like Solomon, he didn't immediately run to a throne. He offers sacrifices and he goes to the altar and he waits on God. These guys knew they were supposed to go out, preach, so on and so forth. But before they did that, they went to the upper room. That upper room became, if you will, like an altar. And what did they sacrifice? (laughs) They sacrificed their day-to-day lifestyle to be in the upper room to receive this power that Jesus promised before they went out to do what they were commissioned to go do. And so they had to completely disrupt their lives, not just the 11, but the other people that were there. They're in the upper room and then all of this takes place. And by waiting, they received power and anointing and revival broke out. And with those 3,000 converts and people daily being born again and added to the church, those 3,000, when they were baptized, it is extremely probable that all 120 people in that upper room were involved in the baptizing. And because of the way things were back then, it's very possible that you had the women baptizing the women and the men baptizing the men, just because of the sheer volume, the number of people. 3,000. How do you baptize 3,000? You imagine, we're, those of us in here, how long would it take to baptize 300? I need your help. <laughs> 
you know, we'd have to go out here to the creek and just line up and go, okay, one by one, everybody come. You see what I'm saying? And you ladies would be baptizing the women, us men, we'd be baptizing the men. And that's just 300. How long would that take? Good heavens. We'd be out there for a while. You know, splash, okay, next. Splash, okay, next. (laughs) The point I'm getting at is this. It wasn't just the 11 that were involved. Because here you have all these new converts, and here's, you know, convert Bob. And, And he's being baptized. Well, you know there's conversation going on among the people. And if convert Bob isn't being baptized by uh, you know, one of the 11 apostles, and well, they actually replaced Judas with Matthias, but if he wasn't being baptized by one of the apostles, he would have been baptized by somebody else, but that somebody else would also have been able to minister to him, to share with him the things that the Lord had taught. So it wasn't just the 11. You had the whole 120 who were involved in this. Now the key is, Solomon, before he starts day-to-day life as a king, he goes to the altar, he offers sacrifices, and he waits on God. The apostles, the 120, they knew what they were supposed to do. They knew what their commission was. But before they went out and did it, they went to the upper room, they sacrificed their day-to-day lifestyle to be in that upper room, and they waited on God. And then God moved Holy Spirit, filled with power, so on and so forth. Now look over in John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. Now this is after Jesus is resurrected. He's back with the apostles. So when they had dined, Jesus said unto Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? He said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith unto him again the second time, Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldst. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thine, thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldst not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved, following which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that the disciple should not die, Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Now look at this. Peter was being ministered to by the Lord. Then Peter turns and he looks at somebody else and says, well, what about him? 
In other words, well, what's he going to do? Um, how are you going to use him? And Jesus said, Peter, what does it matter? What if I want him to remain until I come back? Follow me. Follow me. Do not be concerned about what he does, his calling, his ministry, or his results. Follow me. When it comes to revival, this right here, what, we're, what we've heard to this point, this is a key for us. Because you see, we cannot focus on revival victories in other churches. We cannot get our eyes off the Lord as He's ministering to us and look at other churches and wonder, what about them? What about them? Now, just to kind of let you... Um, <laughs> He just reminded me of something that I had to get over in my own life. I would look at other churches, and I didn't cry out to God, why can't we be big like them? I want to be big like them. It wasn't like that. I would look at these other churches, churches that I know do not believe in signs, wonders, miracles, healings. They do not believe being filled with the Holy Spirit. They do not believe in speaking in tongues. They don't believe any of that. They do believe you must be born again. Now, that's for sure. But they don't believe anything beyond that. And I'd be, look, I'd be thinking about these churches, and it's like, God, what? I mean, look how big those churches are. What's going on there? What? And it's not like I actually said this out loud, but it was a thought in my heart. They aren't praying as much as I am praying. And the Lord, I mean, he was so gentle. <laughs> he he kind of like said, well, how do you know how much they're praying? And I'm thinking, well, I, I don't, but I'm just pretty sure they aren't praying as much. <laughs> and so at this point, I, I'm like Peter. Well, what about that church? You know, they don't even believe in being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no way that they've, they, there's no way that pastor has spent five seconds praying in tongues because they don't believe it. I pray in tongues. Well, what about them? And, uh, you know, he brought some correction to me about that. He says, no, you can't, now I'll kind of put it in my own words here, you can't assume that you know what's going on in these other churches. You can't assume that you know how much they're praying because, see, listen. Even if you don't pray in tongues, if you're praying out of a sincere heart, God's listening. You may be praying with nothing more than the understanding, but God's listening. So from that perspective, yeah, they could be praying a whole lot more than what I'm praying. So I kind of had to rein that in. Just like with Peter, you know, what is it if I want that church to grow to be 100,000? What is that to you? Follow you me. See this? This is what we have to maintain. It's our focus on the Lord no matter what happens in other churches. We're here. We're not there. We are here. And we have to stay focused on Him no matter what. We cannot mimic what they do. Look what's going on, man. Let me just use some extreme examples. Well, look how big those churches are. 
And, and if you watch their services online, it's like, have you, have you seen that? I mean, man, they got the flashing lights. And they've got all the graphic videos up on the boards. And, and they got the, you know, the fog machines and, and all this. I mean, and look how big the church is. I mean, Pastor, I'm not so sure we shouldn't be doing some of that. I mean, if that's what it takes to bring the people in. No. Well, well can't we at least have like pretty graphics behind the words? Okay, the very fact that you're asking that means you're looking to stimulate your senses more than interact spiritually with the Lord. That's why we don't do that stuff here. Because we're trying to minimize the distractions to maintain the focus on Jesus. That's why we don't follow that pattern. You cannot mimic what other people do. You can't mimic what other churches, even if what they're doing is a really, really God-inspired thing, you don't mimic that. What we have to do is stay focused. We have to remain focused on God and what He wants to do here and how He wants to use us in revival. Now, we have to follow this pattern of Solomon and the, and the apostles. Figuratively speaking, we have to first go to the brazen altar. We have to first go to the upper room. And we have to offer the sacrifices. For Solomon, it was the sacrifice of animals. For the, uh, those in the upper room, it was a sacrifice you know, of their time. A, a sacrifice of what you might call self-choices. And in doing this, we have to, figuratively speaking, tarry there in that upper room and just wait for God. Well, we know that He wants us to have revival. Okay, well, should we be doing something to get the people in? What would you want us to do? Really, what do you want? Well, we need to advertise the church. Well, I don't think it's a wrong idea to let people know we're here. But what do you mean by advertise the church? Well, you know, just do something. Do something. Okay, how about this? We spend time in the upper room until the power of God is flowing and people start getting healed and delivered. You know what? That's a pretty good form of advertising. Because when people start talking, when people go to work and they start talking about, look at me, look at me, I got healed. Wow, you're not using your cane. No, no, you're not using your crutches. No, no, you're not, your arm is moving. Yeah, everything's... How'd that happen? Well, I was at this church. It was amazing. They prayed for me. Really? So the pastor... No, no, no. It wasn't the pastor that prayed for me. It was just somebody in the church just came up to me and said, be healed in Jesus' name. I don't even know the person's name. Wait a minute. You mean the pastor didn't do this? No, it was other people in the church. Well, what was the pastor doing? Well, he was ministering to other people. And they got healed. There's something going on in that church. Really? Where is this church? You follow me? There's your advertising right there. Now, it's not, again, it's not wrong to let people know that you're here. Don't misunderstand me. But, you know, if we are upper rumors in a remnant revival church, then we've got to be ready. We absolutely must be ready. You know, like Solomon, we need wisdom on how to minister to the people who are coming in. And Solomon was given that wisdom 
before he started doing all of the, the king stuff that he did. We need this wisdom. Now, when it comes to um, Scripture, the book of Proverbs is the best wisdom sowing book in the entire Bible. Proverbs. It opens the door for God's wisdom to be released in a powerful way. So, yeah, Proverbs is a very good book for us uh, to, to meditate. But we've got to be ready to follow those basic instructions of Jesus. Well, what were the basic instructions of Jesus? You tell people about Jesus. And then the people that are born again, they get baptized. And then the people that are baptized, you disciple them. Those are the basic instructions. Now, the signs and the wonders and the miracles, those are all for the purpose of leading people to the place of being saved, baptized, and discipled. See what I mean? In other words, the primary was saved, baptized, discipled, and along the way, in the mix of all of this, lay hands on, cast out devils, the demonstrations of power. That goes along with it. So now, for us, to, to, uh, we take a look at this saved, baptized, and discipling. The saved part comes about not because we come up with some kind of uh, you know, incredible, amazing, community-wide evangelism project. And that goes on. How many times have you heard of churches doing that? How many of you have been involved with churches that do that? My experience may be far different from yours, but I've never heard of a church that did something like that and grew exponentially and stayed big. Now, I've seen like bursts of growth, but then I've seen, you know, it kind of settles back down again and a lot of those people leave. Now, maybe you know of different circumstances, and, and I just don't know of them. But the point I'm making is this. We are to be living as Christ in the world, and our life should be a testimony. A testimony to the point that people want to know what's different about you. That's where the laying on of the hands and the ministering healing to people. Not just in the four walls of the church, but out there as well. So people get born again. They're coming in. Okay, what are we supposed to do after that? We are supposed to baptize, right? Okay. Do you realize that right now we cannot do that? You say, well, what do you mean? You've got a baptistry. Okay. <laughs> you see that up there? That 85-inch that, that television that we use to put the words up? For years, we had that roll-down screen. And that roll-down screen, we could see the words in here. But then when we had those COVID-19 restrictions, and I sent emails out to the people who attend in person, to the people that watch online, I said, tell me what this looks like as you're watching. Over 80, like around 85% replied back anywhere from, well, it's a little fuzzy, I can see it, to I can't see anything. And I realized, okay, we've got a problem. Because anybody new who logs on, if they can't see these words, that is a hindrance to how we're trying to reach them. We've got to fix this. And so that's what led to this TV. It wasn't just so we can come in here and watch football games on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> it's not even hooked up to the internet or the, um, to uh, like TV stations. This is not 
something that we can just take down and put up. This is a permanent installation. Now, the baptistry is still back there. But I'm telling you right now, there's no way that we're going to be able to use it. Now, the, the faucet's still back there to fill it up with water, but I am not going to... We're not turning on water to fill that baptistry, and if a pipe breaks, water sprays up on this TV and shorts it out. You follow what I'm saying? Okay, we're not doing that. We're using some wisdom here. So what that means is, we don't have a way to baptize people. Now, we can joke around and say, well, you got the creek way out back. I get that. Um, but no, we're not doing that. <laughs> we don't have a way to baptize. So, in that respect, we're not really ready, are we? We're not. Now, you can get, and I've researched this, portable baptistries. Okay? So you can get a portable baptistry, and uh, you know this altar over here, they're larger than that altar. Some of them are on wheels. So we could get one of those. And what would we do with it when we're not baptizing? Where would we store it? There's no way you'd be able to take one of those in the elevator downstairs. And if we take it in the ele- if we could get it downstairs, where would we put it? Along with that, how are we going to fill it with water? If it's portable, how are you going to fill it with water? Well, we could run a hose from the baptistry. I already said we're not turning that water on because if a pipe or the hose breaks and spews water up all over that TV, thing shorts out, we're done. So, how do we fill it? Well, there's no way to fill it. And then after we fill it, what are we going to do? We've got to drain it. Well, draining would be easy. You just run a, a drain pipe right out the door here on the side and let the water go. But how are we going to fill it up? And how do we fill it with water that's, like, warm? (laughs) You follow me? (laughs) So what do we do then? Well, one of the things that we need to do is somehow, some way, come up with a manner by which that we're going to be able to baptize people. Finding an indoor swimming pool would work. I know the church where Kathy and I first attended, it was right next door to a YMCA. And uh, they would have baptisms every, I don't know how often, but uh, they worked it out with the YMCA. So after service, we all walked over. <laughs> you know, here's this mass of people walking over to the YMCA. We go into people being baptized, go in the locker room, change your clothes. Everybody gets into the three-foot section, and they have baptisms, and then that was the end of it. It worked out really well. So we need something like that. So not only do we uh, need a place that we could do baptisms and preferably, um, you know, an indoor pool. I mean, sure, we could buy an outdoor uh, pool, one of those things you take apart, but that means you can only do baptisms in warm weather. And you're definitely not going to do baptisms in weather that's warm, in the middle of a storm, where there's lightning. <laughs> we don't do that. Another option would be, glory to God, a new building where we can have a baptistry put in. Now, you say, what are we dealing with here in this sermon? What we're dealing with is preparation to meet the instructions that Jesus has given 2,000 years ago when it comes to revival. See, on that day of Pentecost, they had access to water somewhere, and they could do that. Well, we really don't. So now we have identified another point of prayer that we, we really need to focus on. And 
Yeah, some people may think we really don't need a new facility, but we really do for everything. Now, when it comes to discipling, we can do discipling here. I mean, this building is somewhat discipling ready because we have the sanctuary, then we have the, um, the fellowship hall. But let's think for a moment. On the day of Pentecost, you had about 3,000 people. One day, 3,000 people convert to Jesus Christ, get baptized, and the discipling started. Okay, it, it doesn't take a rocket science to, scientist to figure out, okay, you're not getting 3,000 people in this room. You're not getting 300 people in this room. So therefore, 1% of 3,000 is 30. We can handle 30. <laughs> We've got room for that. But we need something that is where we could more easily accommodate a larger number of people for the discipling. Part of what I'm getting at is this. I truly believe that some of the people who physically attend this church, and this is not a criticism, it, this just happens. Some have become so accustomed and familiar with this facility, they don't think beyond it. You know, well, the, the pews are comfortable. Well, we'll have comfortable stuff at the next place. We cannot allow ourselves to become so complacent and satisfied with what we have. We rejoice in what we have. Don't get me wrong. But we have to look beyond this. The, the, the uh, 120 in the upper room, you know what they had to do, don't you? They had to leave the upper room. I don't know how many of them ever went back to that upper room. The point I'm getting at is this. When it comes to revival, we need wisdom. We absolutely, positively need wisdom. And it's not just me. Just like the whole 120 were involved, everybody here. You're going to be involved some way, somehow. So you need wisdom as well. It isn't just that I need to be praying and pressing in. Every single one of us, this is why we have these times of prayer. This is why I'm continually encouraging you, meditate in the Word, continue to pray, continue to seek God, continue to press into Him, because it is preparation time for each one of you, each one of us in this church, for what God is wanting to do. We've got to be ready. We absolutely must be ready. So now we understand more things uh, relative to prayer, a facility, um, a way to baptize. You know, God, we've we got to have it. Whether we um, are able to use somebody's swimming pool somewhere or we get a new facility. I mean, Father, we need this. If we're going to be compliant to the instructions of Jesus Christ, we need this. We need to have it. We needed to do what we did to reach people on the, that are watching by way of the Internet. We need this. All of us in here, our focus has got to be on what Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Okay, but God, you know, I kind of like this facility. I kind of like what we had. Follow me. Well, okay, but well, what about this building? What about this building? And he says, well, what is it to you if I let a contractor have it and he tears it down? What? <laughs> what? Tear down... This is where mama got saved. <laughs> I gave birth. I did this. I did what? Tear down. Tear down. See what I'm getting at? 
We have to be willing to say goodbye. Father, we want to, you know, Jesus, we want to follow you. What does that mean? And we want to be ready to follow you. Keep working in us for that preparation. Keep helping us to stay focused on you and not caught up in our surroundings. This is all a part of the preparation for revival. God, give us the wisdom. I may not be the pastor, but give me the wisdom that I need to be functional in this revival as a part of, of this bunch of upper, upper rumors. <laughs> this remnant revival, people. This is what we're after, guys. So, let's continue to press in. Let's continue to see this. Continue to receive this wisdom from God. Continue to believe Him for what He wants to do and focus on being fully obedient to His instructions when it comes to Him being able to use us for revival. Glory to God. Discipling needs disciplers, and every single one of you, you are a potential discipler. <laughs>